0: Hey, welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Kelly Cutrera podcast. Friday would normally herald the unofficial end to summer. It's the opening day of the CNE, but there is no CNE this year, not physically because of the pandemic. This year, the X will go virtual. We'll be talking about that coming up on the podcast, as well as your reaction to the news that the Toronto Police Service is spending $35 million on body cams. And yesterday, a lot was made of Christia Freeland being her first female finance minister. Does it matter that she has no practical Bay Street experience? We'll discuss that with Jonathan Malloy from Carleton University. Let's start off with the school year. It is under three weeks away, or is it? Joined now by Alexander Brown, the uh, chair of the Toronto Di- District School Board. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on, Alexander. I, we just spoke to you on Monday. I didn't anticipate we'd be speaking again this soon, but there have been developments.
1: There, there's been uh, a development in the fact that we've now, trustees at the board have now seen the options that are available to us.
0: Yeah. So before we go through those options, uh, apparently you guys held a meeting last night, went well into midnight. Is that right? Yes, it did. Okay, so how's everybody feeling? Are we optimistic today?
1: <laughs> well, I've been up since five uh, talking to various people, so I'm, I'm actually awake again. Um, am I optimistic? Uh, well, we're, we have to be optimistic because that's what we're here to, be, uh, to do, to ensure that we get our kids back into school. Um, I know that there is uh, concern about the start date, um, mm-hmm. September 8th at this point. I cannot say that kids will be back in school on September 8th. They um, hopefully will start coming back on September 8th, and we may have to stagger their return. Um, okay. The minister, the minister uh, has also given us uh, a bit of leeway, saying he would support it very much, publicly support it, if we needed a second week.
0: Okay, and who would start if you're going to have a staggered start, a two weeks of staggered start that, that the Minister of Education uh, Stephen Lecce is has given you the uh, go ahead for, who would be going back to school first? How would that work?
1: Um, I, we don't. I, that that part of the plan hasn't actually been uh, completely worked out. Uh, it could be um, it could be some of our kids that have uh, special education support needs that will go back first. I think we would look at the the more vulnerable kids, the kids that need the extra support, and get them set up first. It could be done by grade. Um, I'm not sure. I can't give you a definitive answer on that. But uh, the staff are likely, once they they have gotten the go-ahead from the board uh, to move forward with one of the options, will then present to us and to everyone what uh, that would look like.
0: Another thing that I understand that uh, you all agreed on is that masks would now be mandatory for all grades in the Toronto District School Board. The province had mandated masks for grade four and up. Uh, talk about how and why you reached that decision.
1: Well, um, the, the mask motion came from, I think, the desire to ensure that we continue to provide a safe environment for a safe and learning environment for our kids, uh, for the teachers, and anyone who's in the schools. Um, Our our ideal uh, um, uh, safeguard would be the physical distancing of two meters. But that isn't going to be possible uh, with the parameters that the ministry has given now to uh, open the schools. So the mask came about I think as one more layer of saying listen, if we can stop the spread of the virus, let's see how this will work. It it isn't going to be perfect. We know that there are some challenges with the uh, masks on on kids uh, in the lower grades. Uh, keeping them on, keeping them clean, um, and the concern was brought forward that maybe this is just going to be an exercise in uh, you know keeping masks on kids all day, but uh there will be accommodations made for uh and different uh styles of masks, like the uh the clear ones the way you can see the faces, will be considered uh case by case
0: okay, for kids, even
1: yeah, for the kids. This is for the, the kids in JK to 3 as well.
0: So you'd be, would the, would the school board be supplying these masks then?
1: Yeah, yes, we would be.
0: Okay, and that's, there we go. There's another uh, cost. I don't know how much those masks are, how how hard or easy they are to procure. Have you already sourced uh, someone that you could get them from?
1: Yeah, my understanding is that we have, and that uh, I think at this point we've ordered or have on order 600,000 masks so um, we're gonna, and then I think we also have another stock, but I'm not sure. Uh, this is this is uh, this is a concern that we had as well. Do we do we really want to put the the money, the limited funds that we do have, into that? Or you know, our option before that we presented to the ministry, let us do all of this without the masks and the social distancing uh, for all classes, uh, and and that made people. certainly made me feel a lot uh, better about the plan
0: we're speaking with alexander brown the uh the chair of the toronto district school board you're right and so uh what you just mentioned was that plan was ripped up by the province they said yeah this is this is not gonna work this is the plan that where teachers would uh, end the school day 48 minutes early so that they could do their prep time um, so the, the minister is asked, you know, would teachers be willing to give a little? Do you think the union would give up a little bit during this unprecedented time? And have the teachers work 48 minutes longer after the school day? What, what did you guys come up with as far as plans uh, yesterday?
1: Uh, well, the options on the table for us are uh, basically what we've been told by the ministry is um, they liked that plan. The elements of it, the smaller class sizes, and all of the the other things that we wanted to do, but they didn't like the number of minutes. So our options on the table now, we're going to have to go back to basically replicating what school looked like before the pandemic, and then we're going to have to try to use the options in front of us um, to say where you know which one is going to work with the resources we have to allow us the greatest flexibility in our schools. And um, there will be classes that will be uh, approaching um, numbers, you know, that are uh, similar to before the pandemic. We're going to have to focus what resources we have, though, on, and this is working with Toronto Public Health, on the schools in our system where COVID-19 cases have been the highest throughout this pandemic. and we do have a. We, there was a map in our. There was a map provided to trustees, and there's quite a few schools, but they seem to be more in the northwest part of the city. So mm-hmm. we're going to have to go into those schools, work with the, administ- the the principals and the staff there to figure out how do we ensure that we provide greater maximum uh, safety here first. And then we'll that start makes sense I mean it's schools. a
0: targeted it, it's a targeted approach that makes a lot yeah. of sense you know not all schools are the same um, so let's talk about your options that you came up with I understand there's three options that you're right now mulling over
1: yeah option one uh, we, were, we would use all of the money that the ministry has given us uh, aside from our reserves so we wouldn't use any of our reserve money uh, and that would allow us to um, put about four hundred and eighty teachers. Uh, extra teachers into the system, so that's a small number. It's not. It's not that significant. The second option um, increases the number of teachers available to us. Almost doubles it to, well, not quite double, but seven hundred and sixty-six teachers. We would have to use our reserve funds, uh, about thirty million dollars of those funds, and that would um, allow us. That would put us in a two percent deficit on our total budget, which the minister has already said um, is good to go. Option three, we would end up with about, and not much, not many more teachers, about one thousand forty-six teachers. Uh, so almost uh, yeah so 766 to 1046 from two to three and um, that would cost uh, if we go into our reserves we'd have to pull out about 60 million so you're almost doubling it from option two to three but you're not doubling the number of teachers so the resources are still very limited
0: Uh, is there one that right now you're leaning towards that the board is leaning more towards
1: Well, um, obviously, we want to get the the maximum number of teachers in. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know what other trustees are thinking, but um, I would probably be thinking about option two at this point. And then we're going to have to be creative uh, as we go into our schools. And our staff have been working on this tirelessly. So the creativity, the willingness is there to do it.
0: A recent poll indicates that almost 40 percent of Ontario parents will not let their children return to school in the fall. So class sizes actually might not be as big because of that fact. Many people are going to be keeping their kids home. What were the results of the Toronto District School Board um, survey that we were talking about, where you called the parents, said, would you, you know, send your kids back to school as is this year, or would you prefer uh, we make changes to class sizes? Do you have the results yet?
1: Yeah, we do have the results. I don't have the slide in front of me, but I think it was, uh, I just recall, uh, about 70, somewhere around 70% of the uh, parents who responded said that they would be sending their kids back to school. But you have to factor in, you know, a lot of parents have no choice. They have to send their kids back. They're getting back to work. We understand this and we want, we want the kids back as soon as possible uh, and for as much time as possible as well. But let's face it, we're in a pandemic. This is not normal times. We need to be creative. We need to figure out how we do this until we can get back to where we were before. Or, you know, moving forward, we may not be ever able to go back to that because of we don't know what's going to happen with this, with this virus.
0: Yesterday, John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, offered a list of places that are available to you, the Toronto District School Board, to take advantage of. Are you considering taking advantage of the offer? And if so, how do you choose which spaces to use?
1: Well, we're absolutely uh, going to take advantage of that offer. And I want to thank the mayor for um, stepping up and and being a partner in this. Um, It's helpful. It's very helpful when people do that. Um, How we will utilize them, I I can't tell you. I haven't heard anything about that yet. We received a letter from the city, I think it was yesterday, saying here's what we can provide uh, you for now. All of our parks are available to you without permit, so go and do the outdoor classes and other activities. We have uh, libraries available, rooms in libraries. They have, in, in fact, some complete total that will have the whole library. That have the ones that haven't opened so it's it's very it's a it's a great thing to have that resource because one of the things we wanted to do in trying to you know meet the two meter social social distancing requirement for safety is we would have to find those spaces in other uh, locations throughout the city so um, we will use them I just don't know how yet.
0: All right, so you've got more meetings in store. When are you going to make a final decision on the option? And uh, when will we get some more concrete news on, on when you'll be sending kids back to school at the Toronto District School Board?
1: We have a meeting uh, on Thursday. We had to give 24 hours notice because it's a public meeting and delegations to that meeting are welcome. Uh, on Thursday at 12 noon, we're going to have a finance meeting. I will be at that meeting. And then right after that, whatever the option uh, the finance committee decides on, we'll go to a special board meeting and we'll be approved so that we can get this moving.
0: All right, Alexander, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. If this was a normal year, Friday, you might find yourself walking under the lights of the Midway, chowing down on a deep fried chocolate bar, listening to all the sights and sounds of the X. But sadly, this is another casualty of the COVID pandemic. The X ex- isn't happening, but the folks at Canada's longest running fair won't give up so quickly. They're going virtual starting Friday to September 7th here to talk about this unconventional approach to our end of season tradition. CNE programming manager, Zis Paris. Welcome to the show, Ziz. Good morning, Kelly. How are you? I'm fantastic. So I'm trying to wrap my head around virtual CNE. Tell us about the goal of CNE at home and that online portal.
2: Well, first of all, when you described uh, that, that feeling of walking through the Midway, you brought tears to my eyes. I'm going to miss it so much. This would have been my 19th CNE working there, and it's, uh, a, it's kind of a shame I'm not getting everything ready right now. Um, but as you say, we're, we're one of the oldest fairs in Canada, definitely the largest, one of the largest in North America, um, a huge tradition, and when we announced we wouldn't be starting the, uh, opening the fair this year, I received dozens and dozens of emails and calls from acquaintances, uh, professional and personal, who just said, "You know, you can't do this. This is a tradition." So we thought we had to remain relevant. We had to reach out to our guests. We we uh, average close to 1.5 million guests every year, um, and we thought, "Let's offer something back." Um, we're not making any money on this. It's a, it's a chance for us to give something back to the community. Um, so we've got our heads together and put some great ideas down, and we're going to share this with the city.
0: Okay, so the, the site is thex.com, E-X, of course, for exhibition, .com. Uh, what is going to be featured on that site? The first thing that comes to mind is music was a big part of the X. Are you going to be doing, a lot of people have pivoted, a lot of musicians have been doing virtual concerts. Are we going to see something like that on the portal?
2: You will be. So, uh, again, we, we spend over a million dollars a year on musical talent, mostly Canadian. So we reached out to 18 uh, local artists that we deal with, Ah, uh, we pay them a fee, and they've sent us a 20 to 30-minute set. So we're calling it the CNE Jam Session, and every day we'll be launching a different musician.
0: Okay, and if you miss the musician from the day before, can you go back and see them? Will they kind of every day you launch a new one, but will you amass a a group of of different ones on the site that will stay there?
2: Yes. Yeah, so every time we offer, we have an offering, it stays online. So. If you don't get on until, like, uh, say, Sunday, then you can uh, access both Friday and Saturday's musician as well.
0: Okay, how are you going to handle the uh, food building, uh, you know, the, the amazing selection that we normally uh, love to fill ourselves with?
2: Well, for one thing, I think my cholesterol level will be down this year. I won't be eating as uh-huh. many wacky foods. But we've asked uh, our concessionaires, um, and they have. we've got about a dozen uh, of them have sent a video, a recording of them making the wacky CNE foods. So you can watch that. You can uh, cook along with them if you want, and you can make your wacky c burger at home. Or if you want, you can order it online and, and do a curbside pickup from, from these concessionaires.
0: So it's like a cooking tutorial for for bizarre food.
2: That's right. So you can the wacky food at home.
0: Yeah, I'm on board with that. And I think we were just talking about uh, that with our listeners and the challenges in the kitchen. It might be fun to try and deep fry a chocolate bar, uh, although dangerous at the same time. Let's talk about historical retrospectives, because I understand you're going to walk us down memory lane online.
2: Yes in a lot of different ways. Uh, it, we're a 142 year event. Um, this is only the second time we're not going to open um, and people are so interested in, and keen on what, what uh, the history of the C&E is. So we have a bunch of tutorials that are going on. They're easy to follow. Um, the only other time we've not opened the C&E is 1942 to 1946 because the grounds were used as a training facility for the uh, soldiers going off to Europe. Um, so one of our tutorials is the X Goes to War, both the first and second world wars when the grounds were used as training facilities. Uh, the famous grandstand, where you know I, I remember as a kid, as a teenager, going to a number of concerts and games there. Uh, now has been torn down, but we have a, a retrospective look back at the grandstand, how it was used, uh, the history of it, the band shell, uh, how that's been used, the buildings and the public art. So famous architects have created a lot of the buildings on the site. Um, and ghost walks because, you know, the grounds are haunted.
0: Wait, 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 wait. You say it like I know the grounds are haunted. I do not know the grounds are haunted, and I want to know more.
2: Oh, the grounds have been haunted for many years. It's uh, the War of 1812, which we've talked about a few times, Um, the Battle of York actually started on the Exhibition Place grounds, right where the the grandstand is right now. So the battle actually took place there, and uh, many of the military on both sides were were killed on the site, and of course their bodies were left there. Um, Mm. And where the Stanley Barracks are now, there are uh, many stories of people who have seen ghosts or felt something really eerie. Uh, The General Services Building at the east end of the grounds has had many stories of ghosts. And in our building, in the uh, press building, where our offices, uh, there is a ghost on the second floor, supposedly.
0: No, seriously, is I- it is it a ghost that's reprimanding you that for closing down the axis here, or is it what? Like- uh,
2: they will haunt us for a long time, I'm sure. I if bet they, they will, as you can well imagine.
0: Now I can. I know. Listen, we're in a pandemic. It would be super, super dangerous. One of the things we love about the X is the crowds. You just can't do crowds right now. Virtual rides. This is the thing I'm having a hard time visualizing at the X.com. How's that going to work?
2: Well, we've got uh, someone who recorded being on a ride and taking you through it. And it's a bit shaky because, you know, with the roller coaster and other rides, it's kind of rumbly. So we decided we would make it a little TikTok video so uh, you, can, you can TikTok your way through some of the rides.
0: Okay so this this portal
2: Sorry.
0: is it is it for it's for younger people or is it for everyone have you got something for everyone on the x.com
2: something for everyone as i say a lot of the retrospective looks back look feet back is um uh, a little more, I'm not going to say academic, but I think it's a lot more thoughtful, so I, I, some mm-hmm. younger audiences will enjoy it, but I think people who grew up coming to this scene most of their lives will look at it and say, oh, I didn't realize this is how the grounds were used, or I didn't realize the history of it. Um, the, the cooking demonstrations we talked about, I think that's for all ages. The music yeah. has a wide range of uh, uh, retro acts, as well as uh, more contemporary acts, Um famous shows but super dogs is one of our most popular shows we've got uh, three or four recordings of their shows our ice skating show uh, the international air show on the final weekend we're going to have a a virtual air show Um, is that going to be a look
0: back at past air shows or how's that going to work
2: we've been given videos from uh, um, from various of the um, various acts that we've had in the past the snowbirds the, uh, the American the Thunderbirds um, so we will have some of the highlights from those, and, and things that they're doing now as well. So it's a little more contemporized.
0: All right, I don't, I don't have a ton of time left with you, so I want to touch on the fact that the CNA Foundation's community and youth programs—they're uh, supported largely by C&E Foundation 50/50 tickets. You'll be still doing those draws online, so you can get more details at thex.com and how you can get involved in that 50/50 draw. But uh, I'm looking forward to going on the portal. When uh, are we up and running? Friday.
2: Friday morning at 10 a.m. Yes,
0: ma'am. Beautiful. Thank you very much. The X.com. I can't believe he called me ma'am. I hate being called ma'am. All right. Well, the Toronto Police Board unanimously passed 81 recommendations uh, to transform and modernize policing. Uh, They include the expansion of mobile crisis teams, creating non-police alternatives for community safety, and, of course, increased training on anti-Black racism. Now, I could go through all 81, but... Uh, that would be kind of kind of boring, wouldn't it? So let's focus on the biggie. It's the fact that the Toronto Police are going to invest $35 million on body cams. And I want to know where you sit on this. They will be, they've already ordered, uh, according to the manufacturer, um, a whack of these body cams. They're getting 2,350 body cams. And they'll start to ship them in multiple phases beginning this month. This also includes uh, 3,000 licenses for data management, situational awareness, and sharing tools. The uh, big uh, money component is in the storage of video, and I think that's where the concern is for a lot of people. There's privacy concerns: what happens to the video, how long is it stored for? Um, but I want to get your take on this. Do you like the idea of body cams in the Toronto Police Services? Yay or nay? Is it a good investment? Four one six eight seven zero six four hundred. Let's go to uh, David in Bradford. David, I know you're out of Toronto, but odds are you'll be in Toronto here and there, so you might run into a Toronto police officer. What are your thoughts here? Oh, Dave, are you there?
3: Yeah, yeah I'm here. Hello? Perfect. Hello? Yep. there yep, you're good to go. Uh, no, I'm uh, for it. I think, as they say, times are changing. Uh, the police need to not only uh, protect the public, uh, as they are entrusted to do, but they also have to protect themselves. And obviously with today's news about the uh, uh, the coach for the uh, rap.
0: Messiah, uh, jury, yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a perfect example of an altercation that went south. Uh, uh, obviously that was caused by law enforcement. But in other cases, as a former correctional officer and a brother that was in policing for many years, um, you know, a lot of times these things happen and things get out of hand with the uh, person and at least now there's evidence to prove otherwise.
0: So you're a former correctional officer. Uh, Do you think that Toronto Police Services members will be embracing this idea of body cams? Do you think that when you talk to the average police officer and by the way if there's a cop listening I'd love to hear from you as well at 416-870-6400 that the force themselves want body cams?
3: I think uh, definitely a lot of them uh, will want it because again like I said It now is an exoneration tool to uh, prove that, you know, they weren't the aggressor or whatever in the altercation. And I think it'll be a valuable uh, item added to the force. Although I knew this was going to happen when people were starting to talk about defunding the police, that there was going to be even more money spent with the police force as they, uh, you know, bring their game up, as it were.
0: Right, I appreciate the call. Thanks so much, David. Hey, Peter in Toronto, you are, you know, going to be running into the police here and there because you live in the GTA, like in in actual Toronto. What what do you think about the spend thirty five million dollars for
4: a body cam? Not not one cent. I think it's a waste of money. This comes Why? down to well, it comes down to waste. It's right? a reputation, and uh, I think the police should be held accountable uh, about their actions, and they should actually have a private a citizen uh, who are in charge of investigating the police who would be alternated every six months so nobody closes up to anybody. And that's basically it. Uh, but I wouldn't, body, wouldn't
0: body cameras help police the police? I mean, no. if you no. know that you're wearing a body cam, maybe you will behave accordingly and you'll be on your best no. behavior.
4: No, that's because the, the police by itself uh, should be trained to a higher standard. And, uh, you know, corruption... Not going to get any...
0: disagreement there, but clearly we know that there are some bad apples that get into police forces. It's inevitable. Yes. So this and is a good way we to weed laws. those people yeah. out.
4: Yeah, but that's why we have laws. And that's why we should terminate these officers immediately upon an investigation to prove that something went wrong. Or something an officer did something wrong. Not let lay them off with pay, immediately fire them. Very simple. The laws yeah. are already there. So it's just a waste of money. Waste, waste, waste money. Sorry, but
0: Appreciate the time. No, hey, listen, Peter, this is what I asked. I asked how people feel about body cams. Is it a good investment? Is it not a good investment? Uh, And, you know, we're going to get people from different walks of life, different points of view that will be uh, divided on this. And I get it. That's a big spend. Hey, Sparrow in Toronto, what do you think?
5: Well, I wear a body camera for work. I'm a security guard. And I've been in situations where, you know, if there wasn't any video coverage, I wouldn't have, I probably could have been charged for, you know, things that were said about me. So I absolutely think that it's necessary for police to wear body cameras for liability purposes and for a record of the event. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, I think it's very telling what we see. I, I think most of us were leaning towards, based on his character and his past performance, the fact that Masayu Jury was always telling the truth when it came to this deputy deputy sheriff that shoved him a couple of times. Uh, but the body cam footage that we're getting a look at today really is telling. and And it does... Uh, show, Masai was not, he wasn't uncooperative. No, he didn't have his credentials around his neck, but I've argued so many times. You know, I know people that I've worked in radio for years and years, and then music radio, which this is a bit of a sidebar here, but in music radio, they always give you these lanyards so you can get backstage, so you can introduce the bands and stuff. I and hate wearing those. I find them so cheesy. Some people wear them like a badge of honor. I'm somebody important, but I hate them. And I guess Messiah Messiah Jury's on the same page because he had his tucked into his suit. So he was actually well, reaching I, into his pocket to present the evidence and this guy shoved him again, wouldn't give him the time of day.
5: Yeah, but if you really look closely at that video, he didn't really give the officer a chance to look at his credentials either. And then he just kinda wanted to kinda get through like as if he was already part of it. Maybe the deputy's fault for not recognizing uh who he was, but at the same time, like I mean, when you know, somebody of uh you know, who's enforcing, you know, like uh property or whatever he's doing in that situation, you know, like he's gotta really you stop and say, "Look, this is who I am," and then you know it. Kind of, it probably wouldn't have gotten this far, but you know. Yeah,
0: but when you win to... the champ, I totally hear what you're saying, Spiro, and it's not something I considered. So I do appreciate that point of view. But when you're winning the championship, come on, there's a lot of emotion that goes into it. I get it. The guy's job was to keep you know people at bay, but he was super aggressive. Hey, Vince Vaughn. I mean, Vince Vaughn, welcome to the show. If it is Vince Vaughn, that's quite a a get, Caroline. <laughs> yeah thanks
1: um i I don't like the idea of the body cams but i think you're right i think it is necessary because unfortunately there are some bad apples maybe and if it's just going to protect the public and people in general uh, it it has to be done and it's just another mechanism to make sure that everybody doing the police is doing what they are trained to do
0: yeah, and I, I agree with that. It's accountability, another measure of accountability, and it will help police officers, and I think it will weed out some bad apples. Hey, Pete, on the 407, very quickly, I'm gonna give you the last word here.
6: It levels the playing field. People who are, who are always pointing fingers and police being the bad apples, what are they worried about with cameras being there? Because it tells the truth. So perhaps all the activism and things that are going a little overboard on people who are doing a good job uh, it'll, it'll point it in the right direction.
0: I love that you brought that up, Pete, because, you know, I just ima- you, you think about the stress level of being a cop on a daily basis. And, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm talking about routine pull- people. When you pull people over routinely, you know, it's a very stressful situation for the people in the car. People react differently. Sometimes uh, people will start to cry uh I start to laugh uncontrollably. It's a weird reaction that I have when I've been pulled over. I get really nervous and I start to kind of giggle, which is infuriating for cops, I'm sure. But if you've got a body cam on and you get somebody mouthy coming at you, all you have to say is, I'm just recording all this. So just so you know, it could really de-escalate something getting into another level where someone goes, oh, wait, I'm on camera. Right. Let me check myself. Let me Let me make sure that I'm behaving properly in front of these officers as well.
6: Can I make one more point? Yes. you okay. I work with the police on a, on a daily basis, um, dealing with mental health and uh, people with addictions and things like that on the street where they are doing, I have never seen a poor job done by the police on trying to de-escalate and trying to manage the situation where I work and uh, having a body cam will simply prevent the accusations to get thrown at them that they have to do tons of paperwork on and I get dragged into uh to do paperwork on when really there was nothing there it is uh for the most part i have seen nothing but fantastic professionalism
0: all right well that's nice to hear pete i appreciate the call all right unfortunately i gotta leave it at that anthony and barry uh agrees with body cams used to be a uh, police officer so uh that's that's one of the calls i couldn't get to but i thank you for that Now, yesterday, Christian Freeland became our new finance minister after Bill Morneau resigned among the ethics investigation in the appointment of the We Charity Government Grant COVID program. Now, where Freeland is concerned, there were two reactions. One was, and this is a major milestone when it comes to breaking the glass ceiling, that this is the country's first female finance minister. Now, I don't know what this says about me, but actually, that wasn't even really on my radar. I, I think it just, it was, yeah, so... I mean, yeah, it's historical, I guess, but it's about time is how I look at that. I look at at people for their merits, um, not for their gender uh, or how they identify. I mean, I just think we're, we're past that now, aren't we? I mean, don't we want the best person for the job? Hopefully she is. And the second thing that people were talking about is she doesn't have the Bay Street experience. Now, the fact that she's a woman passing, eh, to me, interesting. On the other topic of that conversation, My curiosity was piqued. Do you need to have Bay Street experience when you're the finance minister? So we brought Jonathan Malloy on the show. He is a political science professor at Carleton University. And uh, Jonathan, I want to thank you for sparing some time for us because I don't have the background here to provide any historical perspective. And I'm guessing you do.
7: Oh, well, thanks, Kelly. It's, it's great to be on the show. Um, in terms of historical background, I mean, the fact is a lot of finance ministers have had some sort of ties to specifically the Bay Street or to sort of, you know, big business in general in Canada, but not all of them. So uh, Christy Freeland is, you know, doesn't necessarily have quite the same business ties, but she's got a lot of background. and So it's not, it's not completely unusual to have someone uh, with her sort of background appointed as finance minister.
0: Okay, so it's preferred, but not crucial, when you're choosing a finance minister, that they come from that Bay Street background.
7: Exactly. I mean, I mean the, the convention in, you know, in, our, in our system of government generally is that cabinet ministers uh, do not necessarily have any background in their particular policy area think you can say with the united states for example when, when when the president appoints a cabinet secretary the cabinet secretary is expected to have specific background or subject matter expertise in the area but you know in our in our system of government between we and from britain um, there's the principle more that the, the minister is almost deliberately an outsider that uh, they may not actually have a lot of expertise and they are the term is used kind of an amateur so to speak in the sense that they're not so they're not beholden to any particular area area or sort of interest group in in the in the, uh, in, the um, in the portfolio. they're going to be fresh and new. Uh, so obviously, I mean, they, they can go to extreme and the finance yeah. has been seen as a bit of an exception to that. That should be someone that does have a strong understanding of, of the economy, of business, of links links to business. Uh, this is like, for example, the agriculture minister generally is expected to have an agriculture background. But I also say is that it's not an absolute requirement. It's just sort of a, a general uh, uh, expectation that they have perhaps a little bit of background, but they don't need to have a great deal of deep background because they're appointed much more for their political skills Uh, for their leadership, their vision, uh, and their relationship with the Prime Minister and the party is probably the most important thing there. So all those are assets as well. And Christy Freeland scores pretty well on those.
0: Does her experience as a finance journalist, does it give her enough credibility to uh, instill rather a confidence on Bay Street? And how important is it that our finance minister has a confidence in Bay Street?
7: Well, there's two good questions there. I mean, one in terms of yeah, her background is as a finance journalist. You know, she's spent a lot of time uh, working, uh, you know, to tracking business as a journalist and things. I mean, she she I think she knows that world fairly well from a journalist's perspective. Uh, has a lot of contacts, a lot of knowledge and experience that way. Uh, so she's got that. Even if she's never strictly speaking worked on Bay Street. Uh, but the other area there is is the confidence of 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 the of you know we're using Bay Street here as a shorthand for kind of the Canadian business community in general, and that's that's a tricky question. I think in some ways, you know, that can uh, that harkens back to sort of earlier era when uh, you know perhaps things were a little simpler, communication was a little simpler there, and it was always seen as important that. That sort of Canadian business had this voice in the Canadian cabinet, that sort of that they had this business representative in, in Ottawa. But I'd say that you know not only is the world a little more, more complicated these days in terms of sort of communication back and forth, in terms of the um, you know the importance of, of strictly Bay Street and the Toronto finance community to Canadian business in general. So, for example, if you're out in Calgary, you, may, you maybe don't really like Bay Street that much. Um, so it's it's a it's a broader it's a broader group, anyways, in Canadian business there, and I'd say also the Canadian business itself is is pretty good at getting its voice in Ottawa. There's lots of government relations people in, in Ottawa who are make sure that that the government of Canada and the cabinet and the and the finance minister uh, know what Canadian business is thinking about there. So all else to say is that you know it's not it's not maybe as important as it once used to be to sort of you know that make sure that voice is there in, in Ottawa uh, compared to the past. Um, having said that, I mean there is there's a there are large issue of market confidence. Uh, whenever uh, a minister is appointed and things, the, the markets can react to that. But I mean if you look if you look over over time, you know really the markets are fairly sophisticated that way as well. They don't sort of uh, rise and fall that dramatically based on on who is appointed as as finance minister. All to say is that you know there's this broad idea that. The minister should have uh, some knowledge, some background, some area there. But, um, you know, it's not its, it's, it's not like, you know, the, Bay Street has no other voice in the cabinet besides the uh, the minister of finance.
0: So how telling was it that there was lack of market reaction yesterday to the appointment of Christopher Freeland as, as finance minister?
7: Well, I think a couple of things. And one is, that as I was saying there, I think that the markets are fairly sophisticated and they know that it doesn't all rely on, on one person anymore. Uh, and the second is that um, these trends are not uh, you know, necessarily unexpected. I mean, we, we knew for a while that Mr. Borneau was, was sliding in influence and lots of signs that he was about to, about to leave. And we also know that Ms. Freeland already has a great deal of influence in the government anyway. So, you know, this is this is a promotion for her. But, again, it's not necessarily a big a big change or a big shake-up at all uh, in, in all. There. So, again, you know, there's, there's. I think, the, the markets tend to be sophisticated and look, and look at the somewhat long term. And they know this is the direction the government was going in, that Mr. Porno seemed to be losing influence for some time anyways. And so, again, if you look in the broader sense there, no, nothing dramatically changed yesterday.
0: Christia Freeland is inheriting an unprecedentedly difficult economy, uh, with the recession and a big part of the population relying on government aid, and the fact that this pandemic isn't over yet. Now, she's no stranger to challenges negotiating with the Trump administration on the USMCA. How much is this going to help?
7: Uh, well, I think it's going to help a great deal. As you said, you know she's she's been she's been uh, called upon before to do the big jobs. I mean, back in 2017, when when the Trump administration started. Uh, she became the, the foreign affairs minister very much, I think, to deal with this uh, incredible challenge of Trump and particularly his, uh, his challenge at the NAFTA. Agreement so she she was very much given that big job uh, you know more recently last fall and winter she was appointed intergovernmental Affairs minister we were talking a lot about Wexit and, and regional tensions in Canada so again another big job so this is really probably the third sort of biggest job in in, 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 uh, in the government that's been handed to Christy Freeland and she's shown that she's uh, quite effective at these I mean she does have obviously I think a good relationship with the Prime minister has the confidence of the Prime Minister and that's absolutely crucial to get anything done. Uh, and she's clearly a very able person. Um, she's, uh, I think, a very, a very sharp negotiator. Uh, I think uh, very, very thoughtful. She obviously can really be, lead her team. And uh, I mean, she she got a trading room from the U.S. It wasn't, it wasn't perfect, but she she got it, and that was an incredibly mm-hmm. difficult job. So uh, I think the fact that she managed to 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 get through that, and I think come out as well as one could uh is certainly a good sign for whatever whatever job she has now and sort of leading the country out of out of the, of this pandemic economy situation. Uh, you know, there's there's some good signs there.
0: Now, Jonathan, earlier on in the conversation you brought up the fact that it's it's very important that any finance minister It gets along with the prime minister. Uh, Joe Oliver, a former finance minister, said he thinks that's one of the most important qualifications of any finance minister, that you are in, quote, sync with the prime minister and what he wants. Do you agree? And is it necessarily good for the country or do you want a bit of pushback from the person in charge of the most important portfolio? Hmm.
7: That's a good question, and I mean, I think it relates to almost any kind of uh, executive or or team environment where uh, you need, you know, particularly the top, the the top person, and then arguably the finance minister. Certainly, one of the top if not the top cabinet ministers. Um, You want the top people to uh, to get along, to respect each other. You certainly don't want them at war with each other. Um, But you're right; we also you don't you don't want groupthink either. Uh, You want to have probably a creative tension to have some different perspectives going on. If you think back to like back to the 1990s when Jean Chrétien was prime minister and paul martin was minister of finance uh you know martin wanted christian's job there was it was pretty clear there was a rivalry there but also they, they actually had a fairly good working relationship for years uh because they had slightly different perspectives and uh, and they did back each other uh then you know eventually got too much and they they uh they uh, <laughs> fell into a, a big fight but that's the idea But there is a creative tension there uh, that but it was perhaps a little too far there but yeah to the back to the point is that i think the you know i think the finance minister has to have the confidence of, of the prime minister. If they don't do that, they don't have a good uh, relationship of respect, then then nothing can happen. But you're right. As with any top team, you don't want absolute group think of the top. You do want to have some, some strong personalities that have, have their own perspectives. But there's got to be respect uh, in the relationship for anything to work at all.
0: I brought up the fact off the top that um, Chrystia Freeland, the big conversation yesterday was about the fact that she's the first female finance minister in Canada. She's broken the glass ceiling. I always wonder, uh, you know, I hate that term glass ceiling because I always think of if, if in that analogy, what you know, if you break something, things fall and it can get messy, right? So shards of glass could be coming down. There's this theory that perhaps she's been put in this position where she might actually fail. Now, the only thing to me that gives me uh, a pause and a slight worry in the back of my mind that that could be true was the name Mark Carney being thrown out, the former um, uh, head of the Bank of Canada who kept us out of complete ruin uh, in the past. So uh, if Mark Carney runs first seat in this by-election, would that signal that he's a backup for Christia Freeland if she just can't pull it together as finance minister?
7: Well, a couple of, there's a couple of things there. I mean, um, if Carney runs, then it's fair to say that he's, uh, he's looking for a top job and things there uh, and, uh, and probably wants to be prime minister himself one day, as Freeland probably does as well. Um, I'm not sure necessary i wouldn't frame it necessarily as kind of that backup in case Freeland fails. I think I'd be, it'd be more of a sort of adding to the team generally. Um, I think there is an interpretation, though, about—for uh, Freeland is, as I said earlier, she's been given all these, these tough jobs. And mm-hmm. I think for some people that have said, well, here, that's what happens is, you know, the woman gets stuck with, with, with the tough jobs and, and, if, and she fails and she gets blamed, um, which I certainly, I certainly respect that. But my interpretation is, particularly in Ottawa, particularly the top, people want the tough jobs. People want the high profile jobs because they're extremely ambitious. And Freeland is clearly sure. extremely ambitious. <laughs> so uh, I, don't, I don't think she's being set up to fail by, by any, any means. I think she, want, she wants yeah. tough jobs. And so some of the back to Carney there, I mean, I, I, Carney isn't, some, I don't think it's some sort of stocking hole. Uh, to sort of, you know, be a strict backup for Freeland. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think it's fairly obvious that Carney, Carney's interested in political office. That's been clear for years, and uh, and, and Mr. Trudeau was perhaps interested in getting Mr. Carney on his team in some way. But to me, that again, that's that's more simply build, building up your team, building up your bench, rather than sort of lining up one person uh, in case in case another person fails.
0: Well, it would add a lot of confidence, I'm sure, to uh, people uh, in, in the Trudeau government, which right now still, I know uh, that Parliament's going to be parodied, but th- the reality is uh, they still have to vote on that. And, um, you know, we could see uh, a confidence, a non-confidence vote happen in the future. Um, and, and if you add somebody like Carney on your team, it doesn't still a bit of confidence that you could be moving in the right direction.
7: Exactly. I mean, I think you know, so I think Carney would would bring bring a lot to the Liberal Party and things, and things there. So I mean, it's quite quite logical that again he uh, let's say let's say he might run the by election if we do have a, mm-hmm. a, a government fall and have an election in the next few months. I would assume he's going to run, uh, but, but we'll, just, we'll just have to see. I mean, there's a lot of speculation on Mark Carney right now, and uh, we don't really know exactly what he's going to do.
0: Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Kelly. Have a great day. Well, that's a wrap for today's podcast. Join us tomorrow and every weekday from 9 a.m. to noon for The Kelly Cutrera Show, live on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.